The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When we have that transparency, consumers will now be able to make informed decisions about the security and privacy for the things that they buy. And when per- as soon as that becomes a purchasing decision, then manufacturers will have the right incentive to do better. And we'll see that will be the tide that raises all boats and we'll see better behavior, better quality, and the IoT will be a much safer and better place. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 29th, 2023. Tatiana Bolton is a security policy manager working on cybersecurity at Google. David Kleidermacher is the vice president of Google for Android Security and Privacy. They are among the people at Google who are thinking about IoT, that's Internet of Things, security and privacy. And they joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about Google's thinking on how to create a secure environment for all those little things that we have traveling with us, connected to our computers, running our houses that are all connected to the internet and all using different standards of security. How do we prevent them from all being hijacked and turned into botnets? How do we prevent them from spying on us? How do we get them observing similar standards of security? And how do we do this across dozens of different countries, jurisdictions, and regulatory environments and platforms? It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 29th, Talking IoT Security with Google. A quick word of disclosure before we get started. Google is a supporter of Lawfare and of the Brookings Institution. Make of that what you will as you evaluate this conversation. So I want to start with the question of why we're having this conversation. When people think of Google, they do not think of a things manufacturer, though uh, there are some physical products that people, you know, smart speakers and that sort of thing that people associate and home control devices that people associate with Google. But why is Google which is primarily not a manufacturer of things interested in IoT security in the first place. 
I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, if you look at the corporate mission of Google, which is to you know, make the world's information universally accessible and useful, a lot of that information and a lot of the services and and sort of delightful experiences that we all love and want to enjoy across the digital world, um, you know, all our connected devices and, and services are all part of that. So it's actually just very well aligned with the overall mission. And you, you mentioned that uh, devices are not maybe not a huge part of what people know Google about, but that's actually changing pretty rapidly. So if you think of, if you look at the products around wearables with with Fitbit and uh, uh, the Pixel smartphones and you know, the Nest smart home products, and not just the physical devices, but the platforms that that uh, live around that. So everything that we do at Google is often around platforms. How do we help third-party developers succeed, third-party manufacturers succeed in these emerging areas? And so we build these APIs and platforms to help link them all together and enable even better experiences. And so all of that stuff is connected and all that stuff, of course, uh, is important when it comes to security and privacy. Yeah. And on the policy side, you know, we believe that mobile app and IoT security are just as important as as hardware, other hardware security and other network security that we work on. We think that protecting data and devices worldwide is critical. Obviously, we've seen a dramatic rise in, in cyber attacks and malicious actors over the course of the last decade with sort of variation and and change in the way in which those actors are are attacking us. And the connectivity that we all so enjoy through our mobile devices also comes with a price. And you know, unfortunately, at this point, we feel like the security of the mobile ecosystem doesn't get quite as much focus as other areas of security. And so, you know, we've taken we've taken it as a as a goal for ourselves to ensure the security of that smartphone app and IoT device ecosystem. And so we we collaborate with industry organizations and try to think through the, the ways in which we can help to ensure the security of this ecosystem. All right. So Google uh, from the outside is a bit of a black box. And I have, uh, I have dealt with you guys a whole lot uh, over the years, and it's uh, it can be pretty hard to actually understand from anybody's title what anybody does. Let's take a moment to have you guys introduce yourselves a little bit. Tatiana, you're in Washington. Dave, you're you're in 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 the home base. Uh, what are your guys' roles at Google, and how do they interact with the IoT security, mobile security set of set of issues. Sure. Uh, well, I would just say that Dave's a, our security genius, and uh, you know, uh, I know he's going to be extremely humble when he introduces himself. So I just want to take it upon myself to uh, add that bit in. Dave is a visionary and creates amazing and inventive new ways to improve the security of the ecosystems. But uh, on my side, I work in the government affairs and public policy office. And so the way in which that connects with the rest of the company is that, you know, we have a lot of products, obviously, you know, cloud, our mobile phones, Android, 
and various other things like maps and search. All of those products also have the support of this government affairs and public policy team in which we engage with industry organizations, we partner with governments, uh, we think about policy. And so I sit in that policy shop that thinks about, brings together subject matter experts on various topics. Obviously, I sit in the cybersecurity, uh, security COE. COE stands for Centers of Excellence. So it's our group of security experts. And we we think about policy and the ways in which we can improve uh, on in this particular uh, area, mobile app and IoT security. Well, thanks, Tatiana, for the kind words. But uh, obviously, she's also showing how humble she is because uh, she's traveling the world connecting to all of the regulations which are as we get into this you'll 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 see how just just how quite complicated the the landscape is on IoT security and privacy regulations and has it all in her head and is helping us really uh, organize and manage all of that it's tremendous work and uh, so so my my role at Google um, I'm the vice president of engineering responsible for security and privacy on the for the Android operating system the safety of the Google Play Store, the App Store, and the Made by Google products and services, which includes the, some of the things I mentioned earlier, like the Fitbit, Nest, and, and Pixel products and ecosystems. And I've been working in this area of, of privacy and security for a few decades now. And I'm really glad we're talking about this today because I, I really do believe there's lots of really great technical work and important, cool technical challenges in AI and um, in security and privacy and, and everywhere we look, but this area where, which is, you know, how do we actually understand the security quality and ingredients in, in products and digital products is one of the biggest headwinds across cybersecurity and privacy. So it's one of the most important problems of our generation. All right. So let's talk about, let's first define the, the scope of the conversation when you say IoT and mobile device security, what does that distinguish uh, from? So I, I t- we're not talking about, you know, the, you know, access to my Google account. Uh, uh, we're not talking about the, the you know, two-factor authentication that, that, that you guys have had on Gmail for a long time. What, what is the universe of the problem that we are talking about here? Yeah, it's, it's actually what, that question and the answers to it are one of the complications, in, especially in the regulatory area, which Tatiana can talk a lot more about, which, which is defi- even defining it sometimes, like what standards should cover what parts of it, the device versus the app versus cloud services, has actually been quite a bit of debate. Although I would say it's now started to converge. And so I think the most common way of looking at it, and certainly the way we look at it, is if you have a connected product like a webcam or a, or a, a wearable or a phone, if you think about all the, the, the things that go into protecting the user in terms of their security and privacy, that's all in scope, uh, right? So if, like, so if I have a webcam, so you mentioned accounts maybe not being in it. Well, actually, it, it can be. And so the, a, a simple example would be a webcam. You go into the retailer and you go purchase a webcam. You have a box and it's and it has a physical device and you, you plug it in. And so it's easy for consumers to think, well, IoT means the webcam. But to talk down this point earlier, you probably have a mobile app that's actually controlling that device. And so the mobile app has a security critical role in 
managing that product and is actually considered part of the product by the manufacturer in most cases. And then on the back end, my, my video data might be collected up into the cloud. And of course, as a consumer, I care deeply about the privacy of my video information. And so accessing my video, the account controls to access it and authentication may well be in scope of a product, depending, of course, on the product, like a light bulb may not have that problem. But certainly for a significant number of IoT products, we look at it end to end. And I think regulators have finally come around to that as well. So I you know, Tati can talk a lot more about like how that has evolved in terms of the definitions of IoT. Yeah, so obviously uh, we think about it as an ecosystem. So starting from the actual device that someone picks up from the shelf uh, or, or online buys you know, a Nest Hub or a, a doorbell or a, you know, a, a light switch, right? So many things are now connected. So from those, that we consider in scope for our IoT security piece. Then we think about the connection there between that IoT device and the cloud. So we think about the apps and app security and app safety. And, and app safety and security includes things like what we do on the Google Play Store, right? Like machine learning detection tools and like Play Protect. And, uh, and so we think about apps and how they interact and where they're insecure and how we can increase that security. How do we do authentication? Then uh, from the cloud, obviously, it, all of this connects through your phone, usually the the means of control for a lot of different devices. So we also think about that security, right? How does our mobile security policy uh, ensure a completely secure ecosystem? We, uh, we think about it from the principles of layered security, right? Making sure we have not just one layer of protection, but multiple layers of protection so that our users can can be sure that when using a, you know, an Android device, a Pixel device, they they know that we've thought through all of those layers. And so it goes from the from IoT to the app and then to, to mobile. So it's, it's complicated. Uh, we've seen a lot of different regulations um, come out. This is in, in Europe, in, in uh, Asia, in the US. And, and so what we're trying to do is think through all of the, think through all of the ways that those can impact the way in which we think about security and innovate for security and make sure that the progress on regulation is also taking into account the innovations we can make and try to encourage an understanding, a deeper understanding of the complications that we're seeing. Uh, so before we get to the regulatory environment, which I'm going to come to momentarily, I want to pose a minute over the complexity of the problem, because you've just described an environment in which you've assumed that somebody is using Google products end-to-end, -end. that is, that their cloud provider is you guys and their, uh, their phone environment is Android and maybe their phone device is one of the Pixel devices, and then they're using Nest for their home control stuff. But of course, that's actually a kind of stylized portrait. In fact, the person may be using an Apple phone. The person may be using Google cloud services for some of what they do and, you know, Microsoft for some other stuff. And they may be using components that are manufactured by all sorts of 
uh, both competitors and partners with you guys. So I'm I'm curious. You know, I I look at I, IoT security and it seems to me kind of hopeless because you have so many producers producing so many items that are interfacing on, you know, often sort of least common denominator terms. I guess I want to pause a minute and ask whether, you know, just sort of how bad the security environment is at this point and how much it is worsened by the complexity of the real way people use uh, these technologies in combination with one another. Yeah, um, well, so certainly uh, I think that ecosystem I described is probably the safest, uh, but uh, we understand fully that that's not usually what our customers experience. It's a wide range of products and services, and we definitely take that into account. Maybe, Dave, if you want to talk about the, you know, how you see the security of the ecosystem to Ben's last question. And then I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing to make security more of a reality. And I'm actually quite, I'm um, quite optimistic. I'm not as pessimistic as you've been. <laughs> yeah, I'll start with, I think we are in a pit of despair, to be honest. It is not good, but I, but I am also optimistic. Well, so, so, so I am optimistic and, and we've made a lot of progress. So I, I just, I just want to say that yeah. we just went from a pit of despair <laughs> to optimism within the scope of a single sentence. Yes. So uh, there, there, there you go. We're very fun over here at Google. Yeah. So I, I think it's a really great story, actually. And I, I think one of the analogies I like to, to start with when you think about our journey on this is I think digital security and privacy today is kind of like food and drugs were in the 1800s. And I, I, I'm sure you've heard of the stories of snake oil being sold to consumers and as a cure-all. And it was, you know, people were buying in these things and it was, there were no ingredients labels that help people make better decisions to keep themselves safe. And that's what digital security has been for the last four decades of the internet. And it's been, it's, it's a mess and it still is a mess because you, you go, like I mentioned earlier, you go into the retailer for a webcam and you see 20 boxes of different products and manufacturers and the consumer has absolutely no idea what are the security and privacy quality or ingredients in those products. They have no idea. And that is the problem. Fundamental problem is we don't have that transparency. And because there's no transparency, consumers will not make purchasing decisions based on those ingredients. They're making the decisions. If you're buying a TV, you're making it based on the picture quality, which is easy to measure and perceive or the energy usage, which again, pretty easy to measure, but the security parts and the privacy parts, very hard to measure and quantify. And so no one has really tried to do it for, for the last four years. So that's the pit of despair we're in. And you've seen the hacks and you've seen all of the failures. The good news is finally, <laughs> the world has become, you know, has realized and, you know, a big part of what Google's mission on this is, is like also not just, again, not our products, it's platforms. We want all these things to be connected to your point, Ben. It's about connecting third-party products too in a standard way and getting that high level of quality across the board and and you need the ingredients label and so we've been pushing for that idea and the world has taken has taken notice governments across the world have taken notice and are starting to really ask the question how do we get that ingredients label and it's a digital ingredients label not a you know it's not like you know a printed label but a digital ingredients label that gives you the real time status of the security and privacy quality of those products when we have that transparency consumers will now be able to make informed decisions about the security and privacy for the things that they buy. And when per as soon as that becomes a purchasing decision, 
then manufacturers will have the right incentive to do better. And we'll see that will be the tide that raises all boats and we'll see better behavior, better quality, and the IoT will be a much safer and better place. Yeah. And we've been doing a lot on that. We uh, are partnering with with CSA, uh, the Connectivity Standards Alliance, uh, not to be confused with like 20 other CSAs that are out there. Uh, hashtag CSA, please change your acronym. But uh, they have come out uh, recently with uh, the Matter standard, which will, which is fascinating. And if anyone doesn't know about that, look into it because it's it's going to revolutionize the way in which we think about our connected devices. But basically, the Matter standard is an interoperability protocol and is going to allow, from the consumer standpoint, the you know any app to work with any device to work with any product and that's across manufacturers and and uh, CSA has you know something like 99% of the manufacturers of IoT devices across the world participating in this uh, in this process but for security why this matters is that we're also working with the security folks from all these organizations to create security standards. Now, through the Matter Protocol, already they're, they're including uh, very important critical security features like control into the standard, which was already released. But we will also, we're also working with the product uh, security working group to go one step further and think through all of the standards that already exist, right? One of the biggest challenges we have is that working across the world, being a global company, you've got Etsy standards, you've got NIST standards, uh, there's, there's standards in Singapore, you know, Singapore came out with a with a new standard on IoT and, and security labeling. And so through some of this work, we're trying to standardize that to find one common set of standards that can take, you know, 303, 645 and 8425 and put them together into a superset of, of requirements that when met can show to countries across the world that the security of this product is what we say it is and when we use when we use that through with uh, in partnership with a live label and evaluation schemes uh, and broad-based tr- transparency to let consumers know what they're actually buying then we can have an environment where companies are actually competing on security and as Dave said raising all boats yeah, so I want to talk about the standard setting bodies because it seems to me that one of the problems that you have in this area is that the standards can raise all boats or lower all boats. And I'm curious for your evaluation of how the standard setting bodies are doing. Is this a situation where they are, I, I think for a long time, they were elevating interoperability over everything. And now they're being a little bit more careful. And I'm curious how, like, should we have confidence in, in the standard setting bodies? Or, or is this a, a, something in which there kind of needs to be a little bit more centralization than there has been? We do think that the standard will be raised. I mean, if you take a look at what currently is required of IoT devices, it's next to nothing for security, right? And, you know, any random camera that you can buy, particularly from countries where 
where security is lax and or government control is extremely high, um, that can be a particular concern, especially in the United States. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to dance around the issue. There's um, the conversation around the TikTok ban and and the challenges that the U.S. government is currently uh, grappling with. We obviously want to make sure that that people believe in, in the security standard. And so we, the way in which we envision a security standard to be set for IoT devices, it, even at the base base level right now, would be higher than anything that exists. Now, you know, granted, there's companies such as Google who will go above and beyond that security. And I think um, the idea here is that when you've got the transparency, when you have a, a, a label, and again, live, not on a box that sits forever and is outdated the minute you print it, but you know, one that connects you to uh, possibly a website that you can go and and take a look at uh, a comparison of two uh, doorbells or two cameras, you'll be able to see as a consumer, as a as a reporter who's who's comparing devices, as a government, when you're procuring your IoT, right, you'll be able to compare them. And by comparing them, you'll, you know, in our vision, you'd compare them based on, you know, whether they have verified boot, whether they use two-step verification, whether they have vulnerability processes installed, whether they've got uh, very like five or seven different uh, standards, right? And you'd be able to check, well, this one's got two stars, this one's got seven. So, you know, this one's not much more expensive. Maybe it's the same price. I'll buy the one that's more secure. And that's how you raise the security. So, I mean, I take your point that there's a concern that you could start a race to the bottom if you set the standards so low that they're not meaningful. But I think in the space where we are now, you know, to Dave's pit of despair comment, we're currently in a, you know, in the wild, wild west of IoT, no one's looking out for security. And so I think the standards that we're setting will have a dramatic effect. A couple of points I'd add to that, Ben. Um, I, I think it's a really great summary, Tatiana. And I think, you know, we are, st- the world is definitely focused on this sort of cold, what we call the minimum baseline. It's things like, you know, don't have a universal default password. Uh, you should have a way to report security vulnerability to take in reports of security vulnerabilities. You should have a security update policy that explains to consumers you know, how long for example, you might keep supporting the security for the product. And so they're pretty basic things. But today, as Tatiana said earlier, we have nothing. And so having transparency around the common, this minimum baseline will definitely raise the bar. But it is important to, to, to state that this is the starting point. And so as, a, as one example where we're going above and beyond, you look at the Android smartphone space. If you have a Google certified Android device, it already meets the baseline standards. And we're looking at things like, how do you measure the difference in biometric quality? So today, the regulators across the world are not really looking at that as a common baseline thing across all IoT products. But if you have you know, a biometric on your IoT product, then we think this is something that will have to be added. And so we're working with the GSM Association specifically on the smartphone part of it. But I also want to say there's like two parts. You asked like what's really hard, like how much can people trust these standards? And I want to separate two things because I think it's really important to distinguish between the standard that defines these requirements which maybe are baselines at first, and then over time, they'll be extended and and tuned for different industries and products. And then secondly, the mechanism for monitoring compliance. Those are two different kinds of problems, and they're both really important and, and require trust to be built. On the first part, the standards, I'm not really worried about that. Like we've been able, uh, Tachana mentioned like how Etsy and NIST have 
have different standards. We've kind of aligned on some common, uh, on mostly a common set of that baseline standard. So there, like there are there are multiple versions of it, but they're very similar. So that's not really the hard problem, and we'll be able to monitor uh, compliance to this common set of baseline standards. The more difficult problem is how do you measure and monitor these things? And so having an organization that can scale to the IoT and and a, a manufacturer can bring their product like their webcam to this to some organization and say hey I want to certify it that it that it's compliant and I want to to have that validated and, and, and I want to get that label and do that once and not do that in 50 different countries that's so right now that is the more difficult part and that's why the work that we're doing with the connectivity standards alliance and as I mentioned GSM association and we have another one for for software for mobile apps and cloud apps called the App Defense Alliance, we are working really hard and donating a lot of our time and energy to making those schemes work well, because that is the hardest part of how do you actually monitor and give consumers the confidence that these products do what they say they do. You also see governments moving on this pretty quickly, right? Um, as I mentioned before, Singapore has a labeling scheme uh, that they've released. The White House is also getting very engaged and, and they are uh, running a process to determine what a labeling scheme might look like or what a government approved label might be. Uh, that it sounds like that's going to be released sometime in the spring. And so, you know, we're eagerly awaiting the release of that information and, and what that how we can plug into that. But I think, like like Dave said, our, our key thing is that we want to we want to make sure that it's internationally uh, harmonized, that we've got the security baselines built in that that raise the standard uh, and not lower. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself. 
and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. 
The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So if I were a very cynical person, I would listen to this and say, okay, here is Google, which is uh, one of the industry leaders, seeking a relatively high quasi-regulatory burden. It's not actually regulatory, but it functions as regulatory. And that this has a very predictable effect, which is to discourage competition and that there's really only one company that's in a position functionally to compete with Google on these terms, and that's Apple. And so what the cynical economist in me would say, and I'm neither a particularly cynical nor an economist, is, hey, these are exactly, this is exactly the behavior one would expect from the industry leaders in kind of locking in their advantage by setting standards very high. It's kind of guild activity, right? And so my question is, quite apart from whether you're, whether the approach here is right or wrong, why shouldn't people be cynical about the way you guys are talking about it? And as a functional matter, is this an effort by Google and Apple to make it more difficult for smaller entities to compete with Google and Apple? Yeah. So first of all, when we talk about like the efforts we're doing in these standards bodies and then in these uh, these monitoring schemes, like the Connectivity Standards Alliance, I think it's really good. To, people should take a look at who's there because it really is like the IoT ecosystem. There's a, just a tremendous number of companies engaged. It's not just Google and Apple. You have Amazon, Microsoft, lots of smaller companies. Um, but I think if, if you look at the principles, we published a blog, you can go online and check it out. And we talked about some of the principles that we sort of espouse in, in, in developing these scalable approaches. And I think it's important to look at that because we don't actually, we haven't, we have a bit of a different view than some other people in this, in this space. And we actually worry about the same problems you're mentioning. So we do feel, so Google has a very strong economic incentive to do the right thing for its own products already. We are under constant attack. We have billions of users. We have a lot, there's a, the value of failure is very high. And so we work incredibly hard and spend an incredible amount of our resources to, to build great security and privacy into our system. But for a smaller business, they are trying to make a profit. And like I said, because there's no transparency, there's no economic incentive to, to do better. And so we're, we, want to, we want to help them do better because that's where it will fail. And, and so if you look at the principles, the one I really want to point out is that we talk about transparency being more important than a particular set of like baseline set of requirements. So some folks, when I talk about this, they'll say, well, I want every product to meet the following three requirements. And, you know, we can talk about which, what, you know, whether those three are, are sensible, and they usually are. Like, if you look at the UK regulation, the minimum three requirements, very sensible requirements. I just mentioned them, them actually, you know, the, you know, no default passwords and having a security update policy and, and so forth. However, our view isn't necessarily, what's important is not what set of requirements you must meet, because to your point, different developers will be able to meet different sets of requirements based on where they are in their journey. 
what we what we think is important is the transparency. And so again, I'm going to go back to my food and drug example. When you go to the store and you look at some stuff on the shelf that you're going to buy, is there a requirement that says your product can't have more than, I don't know, whatever, some mil- number of milligrams of sodium? No. Like that's typically not the requirement is like you have to meet a certain minimum or maximum. What's required is that you have to state how much you have in there. And so for the digital security and privacy labeling, this has been really important for us to make it more equitable for the world is to say what we espouse is transparency around the requirements. So whether you meet them or not, you have to be transparent about that. And that will enable consumers to make better decisions. And that will cause, that will be the, again, the tide that raises all boats because manufacturers will then actually have the incentive to do better. We're not saying everyone has to meet the same requirements that Google meets. We're not saying that. Other people are saying that, but we're not saying that. We're saying there just has to be transparency because that will cause the right thing to happen. I'll also add that, you know, from the point of assurance, we're also keeping in mind that not everyone is the size of Google and a lot of IoT players need flexibility in terms of being able to meet some of these standards. So, you know, in our vision of how this would work, right, we think about, you know, maybe some portion of this can be done uh, by self-attestation. Maybe some portion of this is done through a lab, right? Maybe some portion of this is done uh, through government certification in some other way, right? Um, so there, we, we're creating different layers of assurance so that the ways in which each particular company competes and complies is applicable to their particular size and uh, and business model. And so that we can have a thriving in- environment. And for us, that's important. So without asking you guys to name names, I'm interested in the question of who the laggards are in this industry and, and this problem. <laughs> oh, really? Really, Ben? No, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but but you know, you're you guys are describing that you're pushing the industry and the ecosystem toward a more secure environment. And I'm interested in the question of who is being pushed, not by company names. I'm not I'm not looking to have you talk smack about people, but what is the what's the parts of the industry that really need this push? Is it when people buy webcams? Is it when people buy, you know, things that, you know, refrigerators that they can turn on, you know, sous vide machines that they can turn on from? Oh, yes. What's the, what's the universe of problem children here? All right. So let me put it, let me put it in a policy, take it through a policy lens. We want uh, more than anything, for cybersecurity to be thought of as a risk-based, through a risk-based model, right? We want to identify the highest risks and then try to address those as a priority, right? We want to make sure that we are building building things secure by default, right? That's one of Google security's number one principles. And we're trying to encourage others to go that way. So the people that we're trying to convince are those that uh, don't think about it from a risk perspective, right? That do, you know, a few easy security, put in a few easy security uh, controls, but they they fail to address or consider their big, biggest risks, right? Also from the consumer standpoint, we want consumers to think about 
you know, IoT in this manner. And I think the advent of security labeling, or at least uh, the the conversation of, of stronger, bigger, more robust conversation around security will help to enable that, right? When consumers can actually go on, you know, a, a comparison website, which by the way, is one of the places from research that we've seen is where consumers really get their information, right? From these comparison articles that people put up online, which phone has the highest battery, you know, longest battery life, which one has the best camera. We want security to be in those conversations. So like we're trying to encourage the the companies that don't think about it that way to think about it that way. We're trying to encourage consumers to start thinking about security when they're buying products. And then companies that think about getting sort of first to market, right? That are trying to put out a device at the cheapest possible at the cheapest possible level with the fastest uh, fastest speed to the shelf. Like that is what we're trying to trying to address. We understand like the obviously technology moves incredibly quickly. We have no interest in slowing that down. We operate in that same way. But security needs to be baked in to all of these decisions and all of the ways in which we think about it. And I think, again, mobile security, IoT security has kind of been left out. I think people who build, you know, computers who build networks and, and server farms, like security is being built in much more so now than it was before. But people forget that the mobile ecosystem is also a target of attack. And so we need to secure it as much as the others. I think it's uh, it's interesting that we've, we've, we've talked a lot about how um, you know, certainly organizations that have less resourcing and also less like just less risk in general may not be investing and in preventing some of the problems that may come later and and so we tend to talk about the smaller players and how and and the, the impact of these of this whole area these labels and standards on them and that's definitely important uh, but I also want to point out may I'll tell you a quick story about how you actually can have maybe poor behavior from areas where you might least expect it in the bigger more well-resourced organizations. In addition to sort of the gen- generic IoT area, I've also done some work with the medical device security and standards around that because, of course, the assurance level, the confidence level for something that might be life critical, you'd want a higher level of assurance than maybe some other products out there. You don't want somebody hacking your pacemaker. Exactly. And, of course, we've seen that. <laughs> we've seen examples of uh, failures there. And so um, uh, I remember having a discussion with a number of folks in uh, just one of the medical areas. I, I don't want to name names. So I'll just, is one of, one of the areas I've been involved in. And we talked to some, some of the large players, in fact, number one market share player, as well as some of the other smaller players. And what I found was actually quite interesting. Some of the smaller players were really excited about understanding the standard, contributing to it, and, and actually certifying their products because they wanted to show that despite being a smaller player, they could meet the same standard that you know other play, other bigger players can do, that they've been investing in it. And so they used, they actually saw this as a marketing opportunity to show that they're actually, they care about this stuff and, they were, and they're doing a good job. How do you, how can they prove to someone you're doing a good job? Well, have it, have it be certified. Whereas the large, like the dominant player in this area was they were like, oh, they'd listen and they'd say, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to do here. And you know what? Then all of a sudden, no dial tone. And and what happened was, and I've seen this also in the automotive industry, when you have the, the larger players, they only really see downside, right? It's like, I am already viewed as the number one player. Uh, consumers already trust me. And they may have they may have well earned the trust from like their safety critical nature of their stuff, but security and safety are not the same thing. And so when you say, well, can you be transparent about your security practices? They're like, dial tone, 
right? Because they, they all they see is a lot of work and a lot of downside. And so this transparency around the digital ingredients is important end to end from the smaller players, as well as the larger players, where trust me might be their current answer. And we think trust me is not the answer for anyone in this in this world. So one concern that I have about this general roadmap with which I'm basically sympathetic is that transparency has to come in a form that's user interpretable. So it's one thing if you're marketing to enterprises and then you have the the IT departments of the Brookings institutions studying the different certifications, who's promising to do what in the security space. I see how transparency helps. But if you're marketing to individual consumers and most IoT devices are consumer products of one sort or another, uh, the end certification has to be translatable into something that the individual is really going to understand so that they can do meaningful security comparison shopping. And one of the things that I, I'm not sure I see here is how that last stage of the translation takes place. Okay, so you have all your standards, you have all your ongoing compliance monitoring, your submissions to certification bodies, and then you have this stamp. And what does the stamp say? That it's certified by such and such organization to do what? And I'm, I'm concerned that that becomes like a sort of eco-friendly stamp that, you know, nobody quite knows what it means. Yeah, that, and we've thought about that. That is absolutely a challenge because there, as you mentioned, a, there are a number of various types of consumer, right? There's the average consumer who's buying a camera or a doorbell or a light switch at a store or online. There's the more informed consumer who is interested in security who might uh, want to get a little bit more information. And then there are the enterprises, the CISOs, the governments of the world that need a, a significant amount of information in order to make informed procurement decisions uh, for the, for large organizations at a, at, a, at a significant scale. So, you know, we've done some research on this uh, and, you know, we always want to make security easy for our consumers and we want to be able to connect uh, with people. So, you know, we we tested whether, um, you know, what kind of label would most stand out, right? How do you get so much information on a such a small space and like physical, you know, space, a stamp or something like that, that would convey enough information that would get people interested in the security, but not be too complicated or or lose some of that sort of timeliness that you need with security information, right? Because, you know, the minute you put a stamp on something, it can be it can be overtaken by events. A vulnerability can be discovered, you know, a, an, an hour after, a minute after a stamp is put on a box. So what, you know, one of our first principles is that this must be a live label. So theoretically, and we've sort of mocked this up internally, you know, what, what this might look like, and it could look like, you know, uh, like Singapore did some a star system, a, a system of four stars, and you get, you know, between one and four stars for your security. Um, others have proposed a shield of some sort. And just to be, to clarify about something, is that the government of Singapore that's deciding how many stars you get? Or is it some 
uh, trade organization? What who who's a, who's delivering the stars? In Singapore, it is the uh, another CSA, um, but yes, the the government of Singapore. In our case, in the United States, we don't yet have this regulation. As I mentioned, the White House is working on something. So, uh, you know, theoretically, there could be an industry driven standard with a stamp of approval from the government, right? Something like that. Uh, they would perhaps license a government signature or stamp uh, that to uh, another body that d- does the accreditation or the assurance that, you know, is still under a lot of uh, intense debate and discussion um, as, you know, the entire ecosystem tries to figure out how to do this right. Uh, but, you know, theoretically, like this small stamp either could be a, a number, right, out of 100 uh, or a shield or a star system or something like that. But that would lead to some kind of online information uh, sort of store where you could go and you could compare products. You could say, you know, you could scan a phone with a barcode or you could scan an IOT device with a barcode in the store and then go to a website and get that information. You could pull it up on your phone and and it would tell you, you know, out of these five security controls, this particular device is, you know, three out of five stars on this, one out of five stars on this, et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps that rolls up to one sort of rating at the top. And then if you are on the enterprise side, one of the other things that we've been discussing with some of our partners who are more on the network side is to have a machine readable version that's on the back end so that you know, so that uh, networks can can judge the security of IoT devices, and and we can uh, communicate that um, uh, you know across governments, across large enterprises. Yeah, no, that's a really good summary. I think the, I think maybe the tr- one of the trickiest parts here is just the the live label aspect because I think if you look at things like Energy Star and and you know food labels, you know consumers definitely expect to see something physical. Uh, especially if you're buying an electronic product in a retailer, and we need to educate consumers that security is just a little bit different. Unfortunately, like it's just diff- it's a different thing. And, and you know, if your product stops getting security updates, it will become unsafe for use eventually. And then, and so that real time aspect of status is important. So you'll have you'll see a QR code, and, you know, very minimal information on the packaging, or maybe even in the in, you know in an app, and you can like click and get the real time. So teaching consumers that it's a real time status, I think is really tricky, but important to get right. I am actually more optimistic about harmonizing these, these ideas. I think the, there's been, a, uh, you know, Tatiana mentioned research we've done. A lot of other organizations have done similar research. Carnegie Mellon's done a bunch of research in this area. I think we're starting to coalesce around similar ideas. Like the most basic thing has to be easy for the consumer to understand. There can be more information for advanced users or, or maybe even like security researchers to dig into, but keep it easy, keep it simple. And let's just try to, it'd be really nice if we didn't have to have, if we didn't have 50 labels from 50 different countries. And so we're working in, in the International Standards Organization in ISO, I think it was at 27404, um, to try to create a harmonized label uh, for the whole world to use. There is this alternative model uh, which Google also uses. And I'm just interested in your reflections on when one is the appropriate model and when the other is the appropriate model. So I'm thinking about the Advanced Protection Program, which is a, for those who've uh, never dealt with it, is a program that Google set up for particularly high value and high vulnerability targets of hacking uh, journalists in 
uh, repressive countries, for example, people who are who may believe for you know any reason that they are the subject of foreign state actor attacks, and it's designed to make phishing extremely difficult. And one of the things that the advanced protection does is it cuts off partner access to your Google account if you choose to use advanced protection. You know, a lot of the companies that are interfacing with your Google account lose access because they don't meet certain uh, standards that Google regards as essential in order to uh, interface with a account protected by advanced protection. And uh, this is when you when whenever you try to connect your Google account to one of these companies and Google says advanced protection has blocked this, uh, there's a little bit of annoyance involved. On the other hand, you you do know that every company you connect your Google account to, uh, meet certain minimal standards. And this seems to me to be a different, more unilateral approach where Google is basically saying, okay, you, all the companies in the world do whatever you want from a security point of view. But if you want to engage this group of Google uh, users, you have to meet the following very stringent standards. And I don't have the impression that these are particularly negotiated with standard setting bodies. And so my question is, when is it right for, and, and I think something similar goes on at a more, at a grander scale on the app store, right? If you, if you put on the I'm fishing you app on the Google play store, it may not get approved. And so my question is, when is the right approach to this kind of security a kind of unilateral, we set the rules, you comply with them, or you don't do business with us. And when is it this much more negotiated ecosystem-based standards uh, setting that you're talking about here? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for mentioning Advanced Protection Program because it's near and dear to my heart. I think it's uh, really important. Just on on that, I have we have done podcasts on it with uh, you guys on the past. I use it, and I use it because I have been warned on repeated occasions by Google and by the FBI that my account is being targeted by. Uh, foreign state actors, and so I think it is a it is a just a tremendously important resource that not enough people know about, not enough people use, and I think you know I mention it because I actually like the unilateral quality of it. I don't have a cybersecurity defense operation, and the idea that Google doesn't allow access to my accounts to companies that don't meet its criteria is actually importantly reassuring on a number of different levels. I appreciate that. I, and I also have it on for my personal account. And I, I think the, I think it's a good example, actually, when, when you, and, and to, so your question about like where, what, what's the baseline standard that makes sense and where do you have to go beyond that? And how do you sort of, sort of balance the, you know, the, the standards versus the, maybe if you will, the innovation that goes beyond the standards. I think of it as a, as a virtuous um, cycle. 
so the standards bodies tend to move slow and getting harmonization just tends to move slower than the pace of like the, the real, real, real top innovation going on. And I think account protection is a good example of that. Um, and so like the minimum standard right now, if you look at the common baseline in IoT security, they're looking at things like don't have a default universal password. That's great, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that we should have that, that requirement. It's a, it's, a, it's a minimum bar. But if, if the value of the data behind the account is sufficiently high or the user is at sufficiently high risk, then having the option to have your account protected, not just by two-factor authentication, but by an unfishable form of two-factor authentication, which is a security key or the emerging passkey standard, that's that's really important. Now, the standards bodies will eventually come around to saying, okay, I really want my webcam, which I'm going through this you know, security certification and baseline standard, I want the webcam to offer options where, where the user can select this very high level. That will come, but it's not quite there yet because right now they're like, let's get people onto like basic 2FA, please. Let's just get them onto that. And then and then we'll go to the next thing. Whereas uh, companies like Google and others will innovate and get ahead of that. And so it's a virtuous circle. You have transparency that says, these are the options available to you. And when we start to gain adoption and awareness, then they will come into the standards because the standards will see, hey, this is a better thing. And at least make that option available to users. I will just add, by the way, we've never had an instance of phishing against the Advanced Protection Program. So it is a very effective program. We are going to leave it there. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us. And let's have you back when the White House announces its plan to uh, go over it in detail. We'd love to. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Ben. Appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, have you become a material supporter of Lawfare yet? If not, you really should. You can do that at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.